Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Balkan Devlin. I'm the Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Program here at MLI. And today I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Jonathan Berkshire Miller, who's the Director of Foreign Affairs, National Defense, and National Security uh, here at MLI. Uh, Jonathan, uh, welcome. Thanks so much, Balkan. It's always uh, fun to do these things. Yes, um, this is another um, edition of Inside Policy Talks, where we will be talking about the upcoming uh, NATO summit in Vilnius next week. Uh, it is, of course, uh, a very important event uh, for Canada, as well as the transatlantic allies, as Russia's uh, unprovoked um, and illegal war uh, in Ukraine rages on the issue and the NATO membership um, is, is an important part of that um, of, of this summit. So it's going to be one of the most um, you know, uh, consequential um, uh, summits uh, probably in the last decade or so. So there are a few issues today that we would like to touch upon and you know, bring up you know, the Canadians up to speed about the things that actually, you know, uh, important themes uh, among the many that will be discussed. Uh, at Vilnius Summit. Jonathan, uh, you and I um, are writing a series of uh, op-eds for National Post uh, on these on these themes. So I want to sort of go over those. The first of those op-eds were, were, was out um, uh, earlier this week. We talked about Ukraine and Ukraine's uh, place, uh, future membership in NATO. And we do have a, a number of other um, op-eds coming up, China, uh, as well as defense spending, so let's uh, let's give the the audience a bit of an overview of of the central themes that we think uh, would be uh, would be would be important for Canada um, uh, and 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 for Canadians uh, when it comes to the NATO summit uh, next week, July eleventh and twelfth. So, uh, what is your sort of broad overview take on uh, on the summit and why it is important and why do we uh, need to uh, pay attention to um, uh, to the summit. Well, thanks a lot. I mean, I guess uh, at the first blush, uh, we have so many of these different international summits now, uh, alphabet soup from G7 to G20 to APEC, uh, East Asia Summit, and now NATO. So I think to an outside observer, Balkan, it's really important to sort of frame that as that why should we care? <laughs> why should we care about another international summit? Um, there are several reasons why you should care. Um, why this is a sort of a, a different uh, a period of time and a, and a different importance for, for the Alliance. Um, and we try to outline these uh, in our International Post series, uh, as you said, Balkan. I think first and foremost, of course, in everyone's mind is our Ukrainian friends who are not just fighting for themselves and fighting for their own territory in Ukraine um, against in the backdrop of Russia's brutal reinvasion, um, you know, which started in 2014 and, and continues uh, at a more brutal scale uh, now since we've seen in February 2022. Um, so obviously that's first and foremost uh, on the mind. Um, and I think that what we have argued uh, in, our, in our piece, and we've been arguing actually at the Institute for, for the past several years, and even before actually Russia's reinvasion in, in February 2022, uh, is that Ukraine needs to take a much more stronger role within the Western orbit 
I think especially after Russia's actions uh, in February 2022, we argue that uh, Ukraine has a has a rightful place in the alliance. And this can't just be sort of some wordsmithing where we, you know, we all say the right things and Ukraine comes off happy, but we actually have to have a tangible roadmap um, uh, where they can have that rapid integration into the alliance. So I think that's point number one. But the interesting thing is that there's a lot of other areas that uh, that NATO is expanding into. Um, we're seeing now, for example, on the emerging technology front, uh, on space, cyber domains, and NATO is paying a lot of attention to this, as it rightly should. Uh, and these don't respect uh, the boundaries of, of the old way of thinking about uh, the trans transatlantic security. So this leads us a little bit into the second point, which is, is the role of China, uh, the disruptive nature that China is playing globally. Uh, and Canadians, of course, have had a front row seat to some of these tensions. Uh, we released our Indo-Pacific strategy uh, last November. And within that, uh, China was, was recognized as a disruptive actor. Uh, and I think the Institute uh, has been noting this for several years, again, well before the Indo-Pacific strategy was even uh, a possible thing. We've been talking about some of the challenges that China poses uh, to Canada and to our allies, uh, and NATO has recognized this as well. So um, uh, we have the, the leaders of the quote-unquote AP4, Asia-Pacific 4, uh, which is the key liberal democracies in the region, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand. The leaders will, uh, in all likelihood, uh, be in Vilnius uh, next week, uh, following up on their first inaugural visit to the NATO summit last year. All of this is very important, uh, not because uh, NATO uh, is moving uh, you know, and expanding to the Indo-Pacific, but NATO uh, engages with the Indo-Pacific. So I think this is the important sort of uh, nuance and difference is that the issues that will affect the alliance and many of the members of the alliance um, uh, are, are transcend the transatlantic sphere. And we're starting to realize this uh, with China on, uh, on traditional security issues, but also uh, through industrial policy, economic security, technology, um, and, and many other realms. So that's the, that's the second key, key area that I think is of, of importance to Canadians. And then the third one, and you know, Balkan, we can have a bit of discussion on this one too, is uh, the so what factor. So what in a Canadian perspective do we do about these issues? What, what, you know, what can we do about Ukraine? What can we do about, about the, the challenge that China poses? Some of this will be diplomatic. Some of this will be um, uh, through the economic realms and in alerting our businesses. But we actually have to have a hard defense role as well. Um, and Canada, with its GDP uh, to defense spending lagging in the 1.3% uh, realm, um, just is not sufficient anymore. We can't continue to go to NATO summits um, and sort of pass the buck. So I think that we're, we really believe, and I'm not certain that we're going to see anything significant uh, from a policy change in this NATO, NATO summit, but Canada really needs to step up, both in raw terms as far as what sort of numbers of, uh, of spending we, we have, what types of capabilities that we, we put forward, uh, but also the sort of roles and responsibilities that we have. Canada has a rich history militarily of, of stepping up. Uh, you know, we, we stepped up uh, during both world wars, uh, during the Korean War, Persian Gulf War, Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that we don't have a history of stepping up and doing the right thing. But when those capabilities uh, are not there, uh, our armed forces are hamstrung. So I think this is the, the, the last point, I'll, and I'll pass it over to you, Balkan, is that we really need to be much more serious when it comes to defense issues. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, there are, I think, two sort of uh, phrases I keep saying. 
uh, whenever we talk about NATO, um, again, in this place, and it turns out that collides as well as what we need to do in, in Indo-Pacific uh, with regards to war in Russia, uh, how to deal with China. Uh, one is when it comes to Ukraine, uh, you know, supporting Ukraine is not charity, but enlightened self-interest for us. But the second thing is <laughs> that actually ties these uh, together is, is that we don't want to you know, spend pennies today. We will spend hundreds of dollars in the future, right? So we don't want to make the uh, necessary commitments or short-term pain that would come with a significant increase in resources, both military and diplomatic, and the, the costs of that, uh, because we want to avoid that, that short-term pain. But the result would be that we will be paying a much bigger price, not only in terms of treasure, but uh, you know, potentially in terms of blood as well, uh, down the road if we do not um, step up today. And I think all these, um, these, these three, you know, Themes that we, we just you just highlighted, uh, those two things actually tie it together. So long-term uh, visioning of what the Canadian uh, national interests are, how to uh, you know uh, promote that particular national interest, and what resources do we need to uh, you know uh, dedicate uh, uh, to to achieve and protect those those interests. I think will be will be key. And I think having that sort of a long-term vision, unfortunately, seems to be seems to be missing. Um, there is no, you know, when was the last uh, foreign policy review? 2004. Um, um, you know, we do have a <laughs> defense policy update coming up, but, um, you know, there is no national security strategy, which should ideally be, you know, embedded in a, in a broader foreign policy vision. And and we, we start from the bottom rather than the, all these, these other pictures. So I think that also suggests a lack of uh, long-term thinking and, um, in a way, sort of almost winging it as 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 a pressure from allies, uh, from from our you know American allies, from our European allies, and from our our, our you know Pacific allies, uh, basically asking uh, Canada to to step up that you can no longer be uh, a, a laggard in these issues. Um, I think I want to make two two quick points, and I think we can sort of slowly discuss all those uh, maybe expand on on those three teams a little bit as well. Um, one. Is the surprisingly um, you see it in the uh, in the media more and more now? Um, our European allies, Americans, and others, um, increasingly vocal about um, you are know, uh, not stepping up um, when it comes to the the commitments uh, that that we have towards uh, towards our allies and, and their security. I think um, this is becoming more and more, especially when it comes to NATO um, and, and defense spending. Um, it became much more sort of uh, clear and obvious um, um, today. I do agree. I mean, one of the criticisms of the 2% argument is that it's just not a particularly good good metric, but so is GDP, right? I mean, um, of course, it does leave uh, certain things. It's not a perfect met, you know, metric. Yes, it matters on what you spend and what sort of capabilities uh, are there. But I think uh, even with a very sort of uh, rough uh, metric, you know, an imperfect uh, metric that finally the alliance agreed on. Uh, if we're not sort of uh, uh, keeping up on that and, and and use it as an excuse that this is not a, a good good metric, uh, it's not it's not going to uh, fly anymore. It might have uh, been fine um, even back in uh, in early 2010s, uh, but now, uh, especially after uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, it's very clear that the alliance and our allies are getting much more impatient. Um, and not only we're not meeting the two percent, uh, but I think we're also not. Um, you know, I, I need to sort of check it out. But uh, I think we are not also meeting the, the twenty percent in capital investment uh, component, uh, and we are either one of the 
four or five countries in NATO that does not meet that either. So, um, so you, you know, there is a, a, a significant you know, capabilities uh, gap there. And of course, you know, what and where to spend that money on, you know, our, our colleague Richard Schmuka uh, wrote a lot on these things, uh, Christian Lebrecht, uh, right, uh, about these issues. What capabilities Canada need to focus on um, in defending the Arctic, in providing, uh, you know, uh, uh, security in the eastern flank, beefing up our, our presence in, in Latvia, bringing it up to a, a brigade level from a battalion level, uh, engaging in, uh, with with our uh, you know, allies and partners in the, in the Pacific. What do we need? What kind of capa- you know, capabilities do we need? Again, that all requires a clear articulation of the of the national interest and how we need to we need to pursue that. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be um, seem to be there yet. Um, so. We'll see whether, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 it was like four days, you know, uh, to go uh, to the summit. Uh, the defense update is still not uh, here. Um, I don't. I, I forgot. Someone um, uh, recently wrote that uh, uh, you know they'll be surprised if if the update doesn't disappoint. Um, so um, so we'll see uh, whether we you know will it be announced uh, in 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 the summit. Well, what will be the reaction of our allies? I think uh, we might be we might be in, um, in in for a rude awakening um, at the summit and then the reactions to it if we do not uh, deliver concrete uh, promises and funding attached to those promises when it comes to when it comes to defense. I mean, just quickly on that point, Balkan, I mean, it's an excellent point. And I would argue if there was something significant from a policy perspective coming out of this update um, that could feed into the NATO summit, it would have been released weeks before. Um, no one releases. If a document gets released, uh, what is it, a Friday? Yes. <laughs> Friday at, uh, at 3.45 p.m., um, the, you know, and the, the NATO summit's next week, clearly they're trying to shrug this under the rug because none of the allies, all the allies are busy, you know, preparing for the summit. So if we really wanted to show something, uh, not just to Canadians, but also to our allies, this would have been released uh, about a month ago or a couple months ago, or even before that. Um, so yeah, I mean, you, you, you and I will be heading to Vilnius um, uh, this, this weekend to attend the NATO uh, public forum and, and prime minister uh, Justin Trudeau will be speaking in the, in the first day uh, of the forum. Um, uh, it's you know he's in, he's in the program. I'm very much looking forward to the the, the kind of questions that our allies might be posing um, to the prime minister uh, when he is um, you know he's not only meeting with with you know his his peers but also with the with the experts with the with the think tank community with the uh, with the civil society there. And I think that will also give us a good um, uh, good sense of uh, sort of in in a way a, a thermometer of how the allies are feeling. Um, well, one thing that, I mean, we've been talking about, we've done some good work on public polling and, and others in Canada have done it too. And I think it's important to sort of get away uh, from the talking points that Canadians just don't understand these issues uh, or you know don't understand the security threats or are not interested in them or focused on uh, domestic issues. Because the reality of a lot of the public polling we've done internally is that Canadians are actually very clear about who their friends and allies are. Uh, they're very clear about who the security risks are. They're very clear about their support for uh, organizations like NATO uh, and, and the Five Eye, for example, which is an intelligence sharing arrangement with our Anglo partners. Um, and they're also clear that we need to do more in defense. I mean, this is some recent polling that I think Nanos uh, has put out uh, that's quite unambiguous. So um, that line, which continues to get pushed here domestically, that, oh, well, 
you know, it's a few lobby organizations that are that are interested in pushing defense. No, I think a lot of Canadians um, really understand the world um, not only has changed, but is continually changing. Um, and we need to step up to the plate. So I and think I, you know, I mean, there's, there's a reason <laughs> we, we call them political leaders, right? The, mm -hmm. the, 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 the role of the leadership is also to uh, galvanize and, and direct the uh, and identify and lead. And I, I find it, uh, to be honest, quite a weak uh, excuse when uh, leaders, political leaders go ahead and say that, well, you know, we will follow whatever the public um, uh, um, says. We know uh, from political science research, from public opinion research, etc., that the, the sweet spot is where the, the public recognizes the importance of a particular issue and, and brought the supportive of it and the leaders identify a concrete plan to defend uh, the interests, uh, the security and the prosperity of the public um, on that particular issue. And I think it, the Canadian public is increasingly recognizing the importance uh, of, of we need to spend more and, and on capabilities, uh, you know, equip ourselves in a better way to protect our prosperity and security. And it's now incumbent on on, on the on, on the leaders, you know, policymakers to Put, a for, put forward a plan that actually delivers on that particular desire that is clear uh, and understanding that is clear uh, within, within the public. So, you know, I think you know, hiding behind that is, 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 not, is not particularly uh, useful because the public shows where they want to go. The leaders supposed to take that and shape it and, and, and lead. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I mean, I think, it, you know, this discussion on defense spending dovetails perfectly with, uh, you know, with the challenge that, of Russia's war in Ukraine and also um, the challenge that China poses. Um, because why are we talking about uh, the need for more defense spending? I mean, primarily, there's a, a range of different challenges in the world. Um, but but primarily, it's it's great power competition, which uh, in, in some senses never went away, but is coming back with a vengeance. And I think one one thing that we haven't touched on so much, but the Institute has done a lot of work on is the fact that uh, it's not that we have Russia over here and China over here, but in, in you know increasingly we're seeing that alignment and convergence. It, just an example I'll give you, uh, I think it was last week we saw uh, two Russian uh, frigates uh, in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, we see significant activity of the of the Russian Navy in the Pacific now not as an existential threat to allies in the Indo-Pacific, but there as a spoiler and there to, uh, you know, to continue to work with the Chinese to find ways, vulnerabilities within those alliances to, to bleed resources, et cetera. So we're not just uh, looking at uh, disconnected threats. These theaters are, are increasingly uh, interconnected. And, and we are sitting in the middle of it when you think about it. I mean, um, <laughs> geographically, we're talking about in Atlantic, where the eastern flank is is actively at war, our allies are uh, basically, you know, uh, 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 under imminent threat. Uh, our partners, such as Ukraine, is uh, is under uh, under under occupation, invasion. A major war is going on in Europe on the uh, on the on, on the on the eastern flank on the Atlantic side. We are, uh, whether we you know like it or not. Uh, or think about ourselves as such or not, we are also a Baltic nation, given our presence in, in Latvia, in, uh, the, in the EFB, our commitments uh, in the region. Um, so it is, a, it, it is a contested area. Arctic is, is becoming increasingly contested as, as climate change and other actors, uh, you know, started to move in, such as China, European high north uh, is particularly challenging, but 
um, our European you know, Nordic partners are taking this much more seriously and, and upgrading their capabilities. And if they are upgrading there on the European high north, and we are not doing much over here on the Canadian uh, Arctic, we do create a, a vulnerability, a weak spot that could be uh, that could be exploited. And on in 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 Indo Pacific, as you pointed out, it's 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 a very contested area. So we are in the middle of um, three areas that are under contestation, that are um, uh, you know being be you know be theaters of, um, of of potential confrontation, and we just cannot really sort of close our eyes and and not uh, not pay attention to this. I mean. Uh, it, when people think about why, you know, why what, what's going on in Europe, in Europe, in Ukraine matters to us. The stability of the Atlantic area is a core national interest um, for for Canada. Um, the very fact that that we benefited, our prosperity and security benefited significantly from a stable Euro Atlantic area and has to remain as such is is I think sometimes lost. Um, in, in, in translation. That's why we are there. That's why we need to support Ukraine. That's why it is not charity, but enlightened self-interest. Um, but we need to expand that to other uh, other regions, including the Indo-Pacific. We just cannot, and in, I know you have a lot more to say on this issue, but we cannot turn uh, you know, a blind eye or, or pretend that, you know, uh, we, we don't hear uh, when when things uh, things go south uh, in, in, in the Pacific. Uh, and I think that all requires a solid set of capabilities mm. that will take time to develop. So if we don't want to do it today, um, we will eventually have to react. And uh, But we that will cost a lot more for us, both in terms of blood and treasure uh, in the future. And that's why, you know, the, 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 the attention um, uh, and, and the resources should be developed today, uh, not, um, not, not left until uh, things really get out of hand. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess one of the things we've noted in our in one of our op-eds is, you know, the best way to avoid crisis is to prepare. It doesn't mean that you can exactly. completely avoid it, but as long as you can make some preparations, at least you can hope that you can deter or you can manage that crisis as best possible. So, you know, when we think about all of the oceans, I mean, I think you're right, you know, we're in a different geography, our, our interests uh, set are different. Um, and that's why I always push back when um, when we hear Canadians talk about the fact that, well, what's happening in Asia is, is mainly the, the problem of the Americans or the Japanese or others. Um, I often say, okay, you take a straight line from Vancouver to Tokyo and you take a straight line from Sydney to Tokyo. It's closer from Vancouver to Tokyo. Um, but look at the Australian relationship uh, now with Japan, for example, as a quasi ally, uh, a resident power. We have a massive Pacific coastline. Uh, in addition to our equities, obviously in the Arctic and and in the transatlantic, it's not an either or. Um, but all of the, the stability on all of those fronts is absolutely existential to us. It's not a luxury. No. Um, and the and they're connected, as as we keep sort of arguing. Those are not isolated, you know, things that we can say. Okay, we don't want to deal with this one. Let the others deal with that one. No, especially for Canada, this is a a very connected challenge. And and not not only you know the nature of the challenge as such, but our adversaries think mm. in those terms as well, right? So they do that. that there's a reason why that that alignment is increasingly uh, closer uh, between China and, and and Russia. They do not necessarily see the the the, the, the in challenging the West in the Arctic, in the Indo-Pacific, in Europe as separate things that they do. In in other words, they do see that as a very connected uh, connected system. 
Yeah, and I think that's why, you know, while, we, you know, the Chinese will rant and rave about NATO talking about uh, the, the systemic challenge that China poses, I mean, China is is clearly on their doorstep. I mean, with their Belt and Road projects, with other sorts of uh, espionage and intellectual property theft, forced technology transfer. Um, so it's not that NATO has taken this aggressive step or a European step. States have really moved quickly on this. They've moved very reluctantly, <laughs> and some of them continue to move reluctantly when it comes to uh, the challenge of China. Um, but they've really been put in that position. The last point that I think is really important on this too is that, and I think this is really important as a Canadian for a Canadian audience, is that not only is our ocean geography important, but our continental geography informs so much as well. So I often say, you know, and this would be true in in the transatlantic sphere too. You know, our choices are different than than others. You know, uh, we, our choices are different than Australia's as they're different from Germany's. It doesn't mean that, you know, they don't have difficult choices, too, and they're not very committed to their relationship with the United States. But we, you know, the United States is existential to us in trade terms and security terms. Um, is it possible in an alternative future for Australia not to be connected with the United States? It may be unthinkable and probably unlikely. But it is possible. It's it's feasible in the mindset. It's not possible in a Canadian context. Not uh, so that doesn't mean that we, you know, we, we advocate that we do everything that the Americans do. But I think we have to keep that in mind in every element of foreign policy that we do and have a realistic viewpoint on how we sort of how we manage that, how we pursue our interests. Many of them are dovetailed with the Americans. Um, Rather than just pretending that you know some third option is going to come along and and uh, and we'll replace that. And having that North American, I mean, that's I think sort of the the, the key here, and which was sort of the, the basis of a lot of um, you know, prosperity uh, and security for Canada as well as the United States is this you know fortress North America, the 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 the, the, the continental security structure that is so integrated and so essential for projecting power uh, across. The, uh, across the oceans, um, that is what enabled that um, that that the projection of power, as well as in it, the, the protection of, of interests and, and, and both economic and, and political uh, interests uh, outside. So maintaining that uh, relationship is, as you pointed out, is existential, and that is the basis of the influence and uh, and and power uh, for for Canada. Uh, uh, in the international international system, without having that safety and security and that well integrated nature of the North American continental understanding, we will not be able to um, have the influence or, uh, or or benefit significantly from the uh, from the uh, you know the, the the influence we have and interest we pursued uh, abroad. So I think that is sometimes, as you point out, is kind of uh, taken for granted and and move on, but. It, like every other relationship, it needs to be maintained, need to be cared for, and that requires uh, a very good understanding of uh, where you know Canadian interests uh, are very closely aligned with the, with the United States and how we can actually protect and advance our interests uh, together and in 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 step with, uh, with 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 the Americans. And I think you know there is some sort of um, sense, as you pointed out, that you know that. Some 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 people think that it might be some third option that's just not gonna not gonna fly in any shape or form. Uh, we're coming towards the end, so I want to sort of touch upon two things very quickly uh, here. Um, one on uh, on the China bit, and uh, you know, I want you to sort of uh, expand a little bit more on why and how not us, but not only us, but also our European allies would need to recognize. 
that they can't sit <laughs> sit one out if, if there is a contingency in 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 uh, in Indo-Pacific, and uh, what that means for, for NATO. And the other one, uh, and I'll perhaps start with that one, is uh, our commitment to 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 uh, to our European allies, particularly uh, with regards to uh, enhanced forward presence uh, in in Latvia. Uh, Germany recently announced once the the new bases are are, are finished. In Lithuania, they will be positioning 4,000 troops, bringing it up to to a brigade level. A brigade is anything over 3,000 troops, so we're looking about three to 4,000 troops uh, when we talk about a brigade level uh, uh, presence over there. Now, Canada does not, you know, have the the personnel, the troops um, uh, by itself to bring it up to a brigade level, but we definitely need to uh, uh, ramp up uh, our presence uh, there. Um, it is uh, curious that, that, for example, our, our Danish allies announced that they are going to send you know, 800 or so, uh, perhaps a little bit more, uh, troops to the, uh, uh, you know, and as foreign presence mission in Latvia that, that Canada is a framework uh, nation before we sort of clarify what we will be doing. So I think that relationship is, is extremely important uh, for Canada. And we need to, uh, you know, when we think about commitments, uh, meeting our commitments to our NATO allies, we need to uh, ensure that uh, the EFB mission in Latvia is not, uh, you know, left behind when our German allies in Lithuania, our, our British allies in Estonia, our American allies in, in, in Poland are stepping up and providing the necessary resources for the defense uh, uh, of of the Baltics, while uh, Canada is 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 not stepping up. So I think that uh, aspect, it, whether it comes up with the defense uh, policy update uh, with with real commitments, I think that's one thing we need to uh, be uh, looking for and arguing for, and and having not making those uh, investments, both in terms of recruitment, personnel, for instance, we start seeing the costs of that. Canada, as as our um, uh, senior fellow Rob Hubert recently wrote, uh, for example, we were not part of the Air Defender 23, um, which is sort of the largest uh, air defense exercise uh, that NATO took place. And we did not take part in that. Uh, and the primary reason, uh, if you if you read you know, either Rob or, or, or Richard Schumacher, you would see that there are issues with the personnel, there are issues with the availability of pilots, the the planes, etc. So our underinvestment, both in personnel, in in people, as well as is as in, in terms of equipment, started to show um, in in places where we are not taking part uh, in the largest uh, you know NATO uh, air uh, exercise. Um, uh, while you know Canada was one of the sort of fundamental contributors to the air force uh, throughout the Cold War. Um, uh, uh, of NATO, so we are lagging behind, and we cannot let that happen. Uh, particularly when it comes to supporting our Latvian allies and our, our Baltic allies with our commitments. So we did make commitments. We need to keep them up, and we need to uh, be able to um, uh, step that up. So we cannot. We can no longer push those things down the road. But on China, why and how um, the our European allies uh, need to come to terms that it is not someone else's problem. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, great points. First on the Baltics, let me just say a couple of lines and then I can talk about China. I think you're right for a couple of reasons. Number one, I mean, in your, your discussion on the Air Defender exercises, highlighting as well your point that while some critics might say, 
uh, it's not about GDP percentages and raw money, but sometimes when you don't have enough pilots or capabilities, um, yes, it is about that. That's a factor. You know, yes, roles and responsibilities are important, but to a, to a limit. Um, moving to the Baltics, I think our, our mission, I 100% violent agreement with you, uh, you know, for a number of reasons. Number one, it puts us in a leadership role. So uh, it's important for us to be in a leadership role in the alliance. It's important for us not to be kicked into a secondary or tertiary role, but to step up and not just to do that for one or two years, but to maintain that, to sustain that, to build on it, to enhance it. Uh, I think it's very important. And a third reason why I think our, our mission in Latvia is so important is because actually we're hearing from the Baltic countries who were right all along about some of the challenges uh, of a revisionist Russia and continue to be right on many of these issues. So rather than having a complacency, which you could have in Brussels, where you, you, you talk to the wide swath of NATO allies, and you know, I'm not trying to throw them all under the, under the bus, but they have different threat perceptions, different proximity, especially towards Russia. I think it's really important for us uh, to be right there in the Baltics and hear and understand from those that are right next to, uh, to Russia and feeling this threat um, with the greatest proximity. So I think that's really important for Canada's future in NATO uh, to continue those conversations. And they're beyond just defense terms. I mean, we, you know, we now have an active uh, embassy uh, in Latvia. We we're opening two uh, more embassies with accredited ambassadors uh, in Estonia and Lithuania. Um, so all of this is fantastic news for Canada, as you said, being more of a, of a Baltic player uh, and seeing that as an important part of, of, of our uh, interests in, in Europe. And uh, we, should, we should also, for, I mean, like as, as our German allies, for example, who announced a permanent uh, presence in, in Lithuania when the bases are ready, we should, for example, move forward with a permanent stationing of Canadian troops rather than rotational uh, troops and we we call that for in our in our op-ed on Ukraine, uh, calling for the you know the official termination of NATO Russia Founding Act of 1997 that would prevent uh, a permanent stationing of NATO troops in, in the new uh, new member states uh, for, uh, for for NATO. I think Canada should argue for the termination of that uh, and stationing of permanently not sort of six month rotational bases, but a permanent stationing of of Canadian troops in Latvia ideally to the brigade brigade level and that's why as you pointed out i think our baltic allies have been very much in the in the forefront of, of warning about a revengeous russia and that's why we you know again in, in that particular op-ed argue that the the line that our our allies are taking you know drop the membership action plan fast track ukrainian membership uh to nato you know engage in security commitments that will tie up tie it up between now and the full membership to nato to ensure that the uh, the, the eastern flank is secure by supporting and, and e equipping ukraine with what they need to beat back russian invasion those are all ideas that have been promoted and argued for for years by our, our, our Latvian, Lithuanian, Estonian, Polish allies. Mm -hmm. So we have to be paying more, much more attention to that. Yeah, I agree. And just to wrap things up quickly on China. So, I mean, a little context of, of the invasion or the reinvasion in February 2022 and the decision process uh, from some of the, the AP4 allies, which we talked before, uh, all, all of them put sanctions on Russia. Um, we don't have to get into the context of, of all of the relationships there, but they're complex, especially in Northeast Asia with, with Japan and South Korea. All of them have diplomatic reasons, energy security reasons to, to maintain some balance uh, with Russia. And I think in particular for Japan, I think the primary factor for many years was actually to wedge in between Russia and China. This is the dream, the hope that you could, you could create a, a strategic wedge. 
All of these dreams were given up um, um, when Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. Um, and I don't think we should take those for that for granted. Um, the reason that I, re I reference the move by state, uh, especially Japan and South Korea with their sanctions, Singapore surprisingly putting sanctions as well, which is not a, a state that puts sanctions on easily. The reason basically was this. Um, number one, of course, they, they felt horrible seeing the video screens like all the rest of us did uh, of Ukrainian citizens being you know, butchered by, by the Russians and, and the, the egregious war crimes that continue to happen today. Um, so that was, a, a first and foremost, from a humanitarian scale, this was a conflict that we haven't seen the nature of in, um, you know, basically in Europe since, since World War II. Um, but there's a bigger thing at play, and I often call this a social contract right now between um, the Indo-Pacific states and, and the Europeans. And this is it's a rules-based order uh, a challenge, a flagrant challenge to the rules-based order and territorial integrity. Um, and if you had countries like Japan and South Korea effectively saying, well, we're going to look the other way and good luck, Europeans, um, you know, could they reasonably expect uh, to, to be knocking on European doors um, in the in the chance and the real potential that there could be a contingency in their part of the world? Um, you know, Taiwan obviously being the most likely scenario, but there's there's other potentials uh, on the Korean Peninsula. South China Sea, et cetera. So I think there's this is the the sort of the, the you know the gauntlet being thrown down. I think by both sides, there's a lot of friendliness on both sides, but there are expectations, implicit expectations that Europe will step up. How Europe steps up, I think, is a, a matter to be discussed. And I think a lot of Europeans will immediately say, "Well, you know, we have our, we don't have the military capacity for that. We don't have the naval capacity." Um, no one is really expecting, you know, the German Navy to come and be a big player. But what we can accept, and I think what the Americans won't accept, is that uh, you know uh, Berlin and Paris uh, people are ducking under their chairs, saying, "Well, you know, we're going to continue business as usual economically," um, and you know, we'll say a couple meek things diplomatically. If there gets to be a conflict in Asia, um, and the United States is involved as the principal NATO ally, there's just no way uh, um, our European uh, member states can can feel that they can disconnect themselves from yeah. this. So I think that's the sort of the framework here is that why these things are interconnected is, I mean, fundamentally, again, it goes down to our common ally and security provider is the United States. It doesn't mean we, you know, we do exactly what they what they do, but we can't benefit on one hand from their security provisions uh, in Europe and they're footing the bill uh, for uh, to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. Um, and then at the same point say, well, Americans don't push us on China. You know, it's a. Uh, so I think that's the that's the framework that we need to be thinking about this on. And and my last point on linking this back to Canada is again, Canada, as you mentioned, Balkan very eloquently. I mean, we're very much our geography. Just look at a map, I and mean, we are we are Indo-Pacific, we are transatlantic, we are Arctic, and we're continentally North American. Um, we don't escape any of this, and it's in our interest to actually work with European friends to say, hey. We want to make sure the U.S. is fully engaged uh, in, in Europe uh, and helping Ukraine. But at the same point, we want to make sure you are engaged uh, on the China file and in the Indo-Pacific. So I think Canada actually has a pretty unique role um, because of our geography and because of our placement next to the United States to actually take that advocacy role um, and, and, and you know, go with it. Yeah, I mean to 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 quote Benjamin Franklin: "If we don't hang together, we will be hung um, separately." Um, and these uh, challenges uh, requires North America and Europe uh, to coordinate, to complement each other, and move as one. Uh, uh, 
because if we don't, um, as, as I said before, if we don't want to pay pennies today, we will pay hundreds of dollars in the future. And not only, you know, you know, treasure, but we will, you know, uh, you know, pay the cost in terms of blood and treasure uh, in the future. So I think on that cheerful note, uh, um, we can, uh, you know, uh, end in this particular episode of Inside uh, Policy Talks. Uh, once we're back uh, from Vienna, um, we might uh, come back together again to discuss the outcomes of uh, of the summit and what that means uh, for Canada and, uh, and Canadians. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.